Hello and welcome to Move Conversations. This is your host Venkat. In this episode, we talk to Professor Campbell Harvey, Professor of Finance at the Fuqua School of Business and a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He served as the president of American Finance Association in 2016. He serves as partner and senior advisor at Research Affiliates LLC, who oversees over 180 billion in client funds, as well as investment strategy advisor to the Man Group, PLC, world's largest publicly listed global hedge fund provider. The courses Professor Harvey has taught include innovation and crypto ventures, tech-driven transformation of business, and international finance, of course. He also offers a Coursera course called Blockchain Business Models. His book, DeFi and the Future of Finance was recently released in 2021. And that is the topic of today's discussions. Welcome to the show, Professor Harvey. Thank you uh, for inviting me. And actually, the release of the book was three weeks ago. So it's uh, quite fresh. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, taking time out, I'm sure you're busy with your teachings. You know, the semesters have started as well as you're busy with uh, book promotion and talk and so on. And and it's a hot topic. I mean, like what? Uh, today, U.S. time and again, it crossed 50,000 Bitcoin, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, it, that, that could be true. But I want to emphasize that my book is not really about uh, Bitcoin. It's about this emerging space of decentralized finance. It's mainly based upon the Ethereum blockchain rather than the Bitcoin True. blockchain. Just True. much more you can do uh, in Ethereum uh, versus Bitcoin. But you're right. Uh, the interest is very high. It's finally got the regulators uh, attention. And, and I think that a lot of people really want to understand what's going on here. It, it's kind of complicated. And that's where... I come in both with my book and what you didn't mention is something you don't know, um, that I've developed four different courses on decentralized finance Wonderful. that uh, are going to be released on Coursera. The first one's out actually, and, oh, okay. uh, and the next three will follow. Wonderful, wonderful. That's perfect uh, setting, and uh, our audience will be very interested in knowing all of these. And you know, uh, some of them are uh, you know engaged and involved with the uh, uh, Bitcoin move, crypto movements, but a lot of them are very eager to know basics and what can be done with the blockchain te blockchain technology and so on. So let me begin with the opening of your book. Right, uh, the co-founder of Coinbase in the forward to your book says, "In the future, you can be your own bank and get credit," and he says that decentralized finance is a true internet of money. So please explain decentralized finance or DeFi. Okay, so, so DeFi is actually fairly straightforward to explain theoretically. Uh, the idea is that we trade between peers and we do that via an algorithm. So right. today, if we want to buy asset uh, two, let's say pay with asset one, um, we have to go through an intermediary, whether it's a credit card transaction with a three layers in the middle between the peers um, or a broker or a bank. Uh, this technology basically puts people together 
you trade with the algorithm. And it's not too hard to imagine that that is what our future looks like. And not just in finance, but many other uh, activities that we do, we will be interacting directly with an algorithm. So this is an algorithm that's open source, that's out there. There's no CEO of the algorithm. There's no board of directors. Uh, there's no head office. It's just a computer program that's open source that's out there. So decentralized finance is fundamentally about peer-to-peer -peer exchange, but it also involves other things like savings. So if you provide right. liquidity, um, you get a reward for that. Uh, there's uh, borrowing, which is available also. And again, this is much different. So your, your savings, you actually get a rate of return. If your money's in just a regular commercial bank, at least in the US, uh, you get next to nothing in terms of an interest rate. And you need to ask why. And one of the reasons is that the bank needs to pay for the brick and mortar, the back office, the security, the profits, all this stuff um, just doesn't exist in this world of uh, decentralized finance. And the last thing that is important for decentralized finance is the idea of tokenization where everything can be a token. So it could be a token representing uh, a physical asset like gold. It could be a token that is just a, a virtual asset like Ethereum. Uh, it could be a token that represents uh, a share of a liquidity pool. Uh, it could be a token that represents regular assets like stocks and bonds, mortgages. It could be uh, a non-fungible token that represents art, music, video. There's so many possibilities here and decentralized finance offers the possibility of having everything uh, tokenized. And, so and I think that this is, uh, this is quite a radical uh, change. What it means is transactions costs dramatically uh, decrease. And it's interesting that Economists disagree on almost everything, except for a very small number of uh, key insights. And one insight that we agree upon is that reducing transactions costs is a good thing for economic growth. Right, so, so it, uh, decentralized finance from what you just described uh, does lot of things similar to traditional finance and does more, you just said. So what are the specific problems of traditional finance that it, it solves? So cost reduction is one of the things that you mentioned. What else? Sure. So decentralized finance does solve a number of important problems. And the way I look at an innovation, the innovation really needs to solve at least one problem uh, to be viable. I'm not impressed with innovations that solve problems that have yet to occur. So I classify in my book um, about five different problems. And you're right, we've talked about the first one, inefficiency, and, and just a little bit on that one, that in the book, I show an image of a Western Union wire transfer from 150 years ago. I saw that, and, <laughs> very interesting. It, it's hilarious because it, it's $300. And then the fee 
for sending is $9. So the cost is 3%. And that's the cost today of swiping a credit card. Exactly. <laughs> years later, nothing's changed. Uh, and so, and you, you go through the list of things that are expensive to do, like transferring money, um, wire transfers, and uh, even things like uh, in the US, if you buy a stock, you can do it very quickly, but to get that stock put in your name to transfer the ownership officially or to settle, that takes two days. So two days in the age of the internet is completely unacceptable. In decentralized finance, there's no difference between the execution of a trade and the settlement of the trade. There's no gap. And you know why there's a gap uh, in centralized finance? Because somebody makes some money from that gap. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> you take all those two days and, and, uh, and all the capital and all of the interest lost, uh, it's, it's quite uh, substantial. So that's number one, inefficiency. Uh, number two is basically lack of inclusion. And what I mean by that is it's well known that 1.7 billion people are unbanked in the world. So no access Absolutely. to payment a mechanism. And my focus uh, in my book on is, is a number that isn't well known, it's hard to measure. And this is the underbanked. So these are people that have a banking relationship, but they can't fully take advantage of it. And let me give you an example. So the example is an entrepreneur that's got a great idea. The entrepreneur is banked. The entrepreneur goes to the bank, pitches the idea, and the idea has got like a 24% um, return on investment uh, per year uh, possibility. The banker likes the idea, but says, sorry, uh, I can't lend you the money because you're too small. And I would prefer to deal with one large client rather than a hundred like you. So the banker said, well, you are a customer and you do have a credit card with us. So what I'm going to do is increase your credit limit to cover the, the, the size of this loan. And, right. and we all know what the rate of interest is on a credit card loan. And often it is 24%. So Correct. in that case, you've got a great project that is never pursued. And that is the kind of project that we need to drive uh, economic uh, growth. So, so I think that this is, is really uh, important. This lack of inclusion uh, is very important in terms of, uh, of the way that our system is failing right now. Uh, the US is stuck in 2% growth mode, Europe and 1%, Japan, zero. That we're not you know, advancing fast enough. And I think our financial system, and this is based on some of my own uh, academic research, our financial system is really holding us uh, back. So number three is uh, the lack of interoperability in our financial system. So if I have got an idea that I wanna buy a stock, I need to set up a brokerage account, I need to get money from my bank account to the brokerage account, that could take two to five days because it's not interoperable. Right. So in decentralized finance, 
I want to do a trade. I've got a wallet and my wallet is like my bank. And that's what uh, the, the co-founder of Coinbase and Paradigm was talking about in, in his uh, forward that, that your, your mobile phone or your laptop is your bank. You don't need anything other than that. So I've got uh, an address, I link it into a decentralized exchange. I'm ready to go within a minute. I'm ready to trade within a minute. So everything is interoperable and sometimes called DeFi Legos uh, because everything fits together uh, so nicely. So that's uh, number three. Uh, number four is this idea of centralization versus decentralization. So the banking system today is highly concentrated. Our banks have market power. So they extract um, a cost from all of the people that they deal with. And, uh, and it's not really a competitive uh, environment. And, and basically, if you think about the banks today, they're very similar to the banks of a hundred years ago. And the stock exchange is very similar. The insurance company is very similar, the same business model. Uh, and with decentralized finance, you basically, uh, it, it's much more competitive. It is by definition, a decentralized. Uh, a, a protocol, which might be a trading protocol is controlled by those that use it. So it, it's very, very elegant. Um, and then there's this idea of uh, opacity. And I was struck by comments made by the US Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren in a letter to the Treasury Secretary uh, recently, where uh, she referred to DeFi as a highly opaque uh, area of the cryptocurrency market. And I read that and I laughed because it was clear that she or whoever wrote that letter to the <clears throat> Treasury Secretary had no idea what decentralized finance was really about. Decentralized finance is completely open. So the algorithms, which are called smart contract, are open source. Anybody can see them and anybody can see the balances. So if you're trading with somebody, you see exactly what they've got. So, so it is the opposite of our system uh, today. You want opacity, you talk about our current system. Our current system, you deal with the bank, you have no idea what the health of that bank is. And you basically trust the regulator to monitor uh, the health of the bank. And, and we all know the track record <laughs> of the regulators is awful. And we don't need to look back to the 1920s and 30s. You look back just uh, you know, a, de a decade ago, um, a little more than that to the global financial crisis. So, so again, these are, are five problems that exist today that decentralized finance uh, addresses directly. Wonderful. Uh, in fact, uh, on your last point, uh, often, uh, you know, good customers like us often think that like, why do they keep doing this KYC every year, every six months, every two years, whatever, it's become a pain for common, you know, honest customers. We need a KYB, know your bank, you know, and which, uh, which is not there from their disclosures, from their filings. We don't know, really. KYB is more today important to us than KYC. Yeah, so I, I totally agree. And, and, and look, in the future, 
uh, as as Fred mentioned, the bank is your um, your smartphone. And 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 just to to give you an example of this situation, consider the country of Venezuela. So right. Venezuela uh, has had uh, irresponsible fiscal and monetary policies. They've been mired in hyperinflation. So the rich in Venezuela, this is no big deal because they have U.S. dollar bank accounts offshore in the state of Florida, uh, usually. So, right. it, so inflation can run at 700% and, and, and basically they're protected. It's a little annoying, but you keep your wealth. Everybody else, the average person in Venezuela gets hammered by inflation. It's a huge tax uh, on them. And they can't, uh, they can't do the same thing as the rich because they can't afford to go and set up a bank account in, uh, in Florida. In any ways, the size of the bank account would be uh, so small. So in comes decentralized finance. And now um, the large proportion of the population that was being hammered by inflation, well, they've got a smartphone. And on their smartphone, they can keep uh, tokens that are linked to the US dollar. So you think about what's happened, the, the rich have basically dollarized and Correct. those that are not rich are doing the same thing and effectively disintermediating uh, the central bank. So, uh, so I think it's very striking that, uh, and this country is a good example of a number of things. So if the centralized system is irresponsible, it's going to be replaced and we see that. But the other insight is very important, and that is that decentralized finance is a technology of inclusion. So this is not just uh, to benefit uh, the rich, it's to benefit everybody. And indeed, within decentralized finance, everybody is a peer. So there's no banker, there's no customer, there's no hierarchy whatsoever, you're just a peer. And, right. uh, and, and that's how it works. And that's how it will work. And that's how it will disrupt very severely our current banking system. In 15 years, it will look so different. You won't recognize uh, the system. Some of the banks will remain, they'll be smaller, and they'll have a different business model. Right. So DeFi is a much broader concept than the you know, concept of Bitcoin, which people often hear in the news. Some of them invest with Bitcoin, as you mentioned, is a, you know, in your book is a store of value. And, you know, and uh, as we see, it thrives on scarcity. So it's an asset class. So you have given a very nice comparison in your book of the value proposition of Bitcoin versus U.S. dollar. Can you please share with our viewers? So, so Bitcoin, I say, is a store of value currently, but an extremely volatile store of value. Right. So it is like six times more volatile than, let's say, gold. So it's mainly used for speculation right now. The original vision for Bitcoin was uh, for a transactional um, role. So Satoshi Nakamoto's um, key paper in 2008 was about using Bitcoin for transactions. However, that's just not feasible today, currently, because the cost of transaction is, is too high. 
So when I was teaching earlier this year, there was a, somebody moved $5.4 billion worth of Bitcoin in less than a half hour. Uh, and the total cost was $19, which is remarkable wow. uh, for a transaction <laughs> that, that large. But that $19 is, is a lot if you're thinking of buying a cup of coffee. So, so Bitcoin really can't be used in its current form for transactions. However, there are some technologies that allow us to, um, to transact off the Bitcoin blockchain in a special secure, uh, it's called a multi-signature uh, wallet that allows for very cheap transactions. And then every so often you go out to the Bitcoin blockchain. So there's still hope for Bitcoin uh, as a transactional mechanism. And indeed, that's exactly what the country of El Salvador uh, is doing. So not every transaction that happens in El Salvador is on the Bitcoin blockchain, but it is done in what's known as a layer two, which I explore uh, in my book. So that's, and, and let me also say that I, I totally understand that Bitcoin is really difficult uh, to value. And uh, some people believe it's worth zero uh, and it might be. And some people uh, have the following um, logic and I'll, the word logic in quotations uh, that Bitcoin is the new gold. The total value of gold is $9 trillion. The total number of Bitcoin will be 21 million. So divide the 9 trillion by 21 million, and you get about $400,000. So that should be the value of Bitcoin. So the reason I put uh, quotations around the logic is that it's not really logic. You assume the result by saying that Bitcoin equals gold. That's a pretty big assumption, but it is difficult to think about the valuation. It's a lot easier uh, and to think about valuations of other crypto uh, currencies. So, I've already mentioned that you can have tokens that are backed by uh, actual collateral. So you got to have a token that's backed by gold. So that's really easy to value. You could have a token that is backed by an equity like IBM share or an Apple share. So that's incredibly easy to value. The stable coins, those that are backed by dollars, those are easy to value. Uh, even something like Ethereum and Ethereum is different than Bitcoin because it offers a feature that Bitcoin doesn't offer. It offers the feature of running a computer program, an algorithm, mm -hmm. I called it, within their blockchain. So some people call this the Ethereum virtual machine. Think of it as, well, Amazon uh, has part of its value because of its cloud uh, computing operation. So you can actually do something with the cloud computing in Amazon, you pay for it. In the same way, you can actually do things. You can uh, deploy these protocols that could be for savings and lending and exchange. And there is a definite utility uh, from that. So you can see that there's a value associated with it. So Ethereum, uh, you just explained how it is different. And what is the gas fee that Ethereum charges for every transaction? So the gas fee is, is really important. Um, and uh, what you don't want is for an algorithm to be deployed in the Ethereum blockchain 
that is a faulty algorithm that just runs forever. Okay, so we call that in computer science like an infinite loop. So it would take up a lot of computing power and it just would go on forever. And the way this works is the Ethereum blockchain resides on you know, thousands of nodes around the world. And that would just be a waste. So the way that the founders of Ethereum got around this is with a gas fee. And the gas fee is very analogous to like a car. So let's say you've got a self-driving car that um, is gas powered and it goes out of control. So it goes into the infinite loop and it's driving on the highway and just keeps on going. But there's a limiting factor. It's gonna stop when it runs out of gas. And sort of fuel, yes. Yeah, so, so this is the same idea. So the idea is that you pay a fee and that fee reflects the amount of computation that's necessary in, uh, to do what you're asking the algorithm uh, to do. And uh, then there's another layer. So there's the amount of gas that you need. So let's say one, one liter. <laughs> uh, but the other aspect to this is that, well, the demand also is important. So if there's a lot of demand to do transactions, and given there's a limited capacity currently in Ethereum, then the price of gas actually goes up. So, uh, so the price of gas times the amount of gas, which is the computational lot of time, that's how Ethereum actually works. Right now, like Bitcoin, the, the cost of transactions uh, is quite high in Ethereum. And just to, to be like really blunt about this, Ethereum can do about 15 transactions per second, but let's say Visa uh, can do 65,000 transactions per second. That's a big right. gap. And right. Ethereum uh, will launch its version two next year, which promises to uh, vastly increase the uh, transactions per second to go well uh, beyond uh, uh, Visa. And when that happens, then the actual gas fees will go down uh, dramatically. Indeed, we know this because there's a number of Ethereum-like uh, competitors that have already implemented some of the things that Ethereum will be doing uh, next year. And the cost of transacting on these alternative uh, blockchains is really low. All right. So you briefly just mentioned uh, stable coins. So what are they? And I believe some of them can be redeemed for one is to one for US dollar. So if that is the case, then will there be no bank run on these things in the future? Uh, well, anything can happen in the future. So, <laughs> right. it, 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 so <laughs> let me just qualify that. Um, so there are many different types of stable coins. So the most popular stable coins today are USDC um, and USDT. And these are centralized stable coins. So that means there is a company. So Circle is the company that oversees USDC. And uh, USDC is guaranteed uh, at $1 by, by Coinbase and some other exchanges. Um, and, and basically the idea is that Circle needs to house the collateral. 
So you put uh, a dollar in and you get one of these stable coins. So Circle has to actually hold that dollar. So how do you actually do that? So you could buy, let's say treasury bills um, is one thing you could do. Um, some of these stable coins are buying riskier things like commercial paper is probably not what you want to do because right. you never know what could happen. And we've been through the global financial crisis. We saw what happened um, to the money market funds. Uh, but they can also uh, put, um, um, they can put money in the, uh, the bank. And the problem with that is that the insurance, the federal deposit insurance in the US has got a limit to it. So if you have $20 billion and you put that into a bank, and the bank fails, then you're in trouble. Correct. So, and and then you can't really go and 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 deposit at a thousand banks. Um, that's just not feasible uh, to to organize. So, so it is a real dilemma, and it's really interesting what's happening because Circle has applied to become a bank. Okay. So, uh, and and they want to become a very special bank which probably most of your listeners have never heard of this type of bank uh, and it's called a narrow bank. And let me explain what that is. A regular bank, you deposit $100 and then the bank sets aside, uh, let's say 10% and that goes to the central bank as a reserve, a required reserve. And the other right. $90, the bank takes in, lends it out and does all sorts of stuff, uses it for collateral, puts it to use. So a narrow bank is, has a totally different business model. They take your deposit and uh, instead of putting 10% with the central bank on reserve, they put 100%. And that's all they do. They take your deposit and park it at the Fed. There is uh, some small interest rate that's paid on what's known as the excess reserve. So there's some cash flow uh, coming in. But if you think about this deeply, what Circle is basically doing is uh, the Fed in the US would be effectively insuring their stablecoin. So Correct. effectively, the USDC becomes the central bank digital currency. It's right. that easy to do. So the Fed will fight this. I doubt it will happen, but there is a risk to these stable coins that are backed by US dollars. I like the, there's another type of stable coin in the second category uh, that I'm much more enthusiastic about. And that is uh, a stable coin that has virtual uh, collateral. Uh, and that would be collateral, for example, it could be Ethereum as your collateral. And, and that, that's easy to monitor. You see exactly what the collateralization is. And um, some of the leading protocols are the MakerDAO um, protocol and DAI, D-A-I is their stable coin. And I also like um, the FEI, that's F-E-I uh, protocol. Uh, and their, their stable coin is also in the same class. So uh, you don't have this problem uh, with these uh, stable coins uh, that USDC, USDT or Tether is mm. very mysterious because we don't really know what their collateral is. 
right? right. And they've okay. already revealed that some of their collateral is cryptocurrency, which is incredibly right. volatile. So exactly. uh, yeah, I, I think uh, USDT has been very popular, but I think uh, it'll be replaced by these stable coins that have virtual uh, collateral. And these stable coins that have virtual collateral are decentralized. So again, I want to emphasize that USDC, USDT are centralized stable coins. The JP Morgan stable coin is a centralized stable coin. And almost all banks will have their own uh, stable coin. They're all centralized. Whereas DAI and FEI are decentralized. So this is a, a very important uh, distinction. So if somebody has tried, you know, uh, star, launched a USDC based on US dollars, has anyone done something like a basket of international currencies? Yeah, you see, this is the beauty of tokenization. So you can have a stable coin that's based upon anything. So right. you could have a stable coin based on a basket of currencies. You could have a stable coin that's based upon individual currencies. You're gonna have a stable coin that's backed by gold. Uh, there's many possibilities uh, in, in this space. But it, it's, I mean, I just wanted to also know that's good that we can do that, but has anyone done it or is probably in the, in the making? Uh, so I actually can't name right now a, a stable coin that let's say is the top uh, 10 uh, currencies uh, in it. Uh, but with high probability that exists out there. Yeah, sure. No, no problem. So in your book, you say that, you know, luckily it is extraordinarily difficult for any actor, even an entire country to amass so much of network power on the most widely used blockchains, such as, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum. So the, the doubt that I have, have in my mind is that if there is a honeypot, why will people not develop sophisticated tools to break it? You know, you do point out in your book about crypto exchanges, which have been hacked. And every week we hear of more sophisticated internet attacks on the internet. So we, now there are people talking about quantum computing, which will come up. So maybe the tools of future can be more sophisticated. What are the views on the risk of DeFi? That's where I was heading to with this. Yeah, uh, sure. Well, let me first talk about, because your question's got many parts to it. So Bitcoin and Ethereum use a consensus protocol called proof of work. And that involves mining and the miners um, work very redundantly, try to solve a problem that's really difficult to solve. They uh, validate transactions. And then the first miner to solve the problem is the one that is allowed to add a new group of transactions to the shared uh, blockchain. So this is computationally very, uh, very burdensome. And the way that both blockchains are constructed is that the, uh, the difficulty of the problem that's being solved is basically variable. So as more computing power comes onto the network, the problem becomes more difficult so that blocks can be added every 20 seconds in Ethereum, let's say. So if it takes 40 seconds, that's too long, we need to reduce the difficulty. So it's very much a dynamic. So this is resilient to increases in computing power that we've had over the past, you know, like 12 years, for example. 
uh, since the launch of uh, uh, Bitcoin. So this is uh, the amount of computing power is unprecedented. The security is unprecedented. Uh, it is at the same time, the greatest strength of Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, but it's also the greatest weakness because of the amount of energy that's used and much of that energy from coal or uh, fossil right. fuels. So, um, so Ethereum will switch to another uh, protocol. And just to take a step back to proof of work, the amount of computing is so enormous. And this isn't computing that you do on your laptop or your desktop or Amazon cloud. This is done with very specialized chips that are designed to solve the particular problem. And it's a different problem for Ethereum than for Bitcoin. So a mining machine for Ethereum doesn't work on Bitcoin and vice versa. So right. Ethereum will switch to a different consensus protocol called proof of work and the or a proof of uh, stake, I'm sorry. So proof of stake is uh, a very nice idea. And that is that miners will put uh, a deposit in called their stake. And if a miner has, let's say 10% of the stake in the overall network, then probabilistically they'll be chosen 10% of the time to validate transactions and to add the block. So you don't have this redundant uh, computing and proof of stake. And, um, and it's much more energy efficient, it's vastly more energy efficient right. because it, instead of thousands and thousands of computers trying to do the same thing, you've got one computer doing it. And the mechanism is pretty uh, straightforward that if the miner, does something nefarious. So for example, uh, validating a transaction that is invalid, then that comes directly out of their stake. So they need to make it whole. So it is incentive uh, compatible to actually do this. And this also greatly increases the, the speed. So the number of transactions uh, per second. Um, as for quantum computing, and I get this question a lot. Um, the, the quantum computing is not really that useful in terms of uh, the proof of work sort of stuff that goes on. So think of thousands of computers trying to solve this, this problem. Um, the quantum computer isn't really designed to solve that problem. Okay. However, and this is a big however, uh, the quantum computing offers the possibility of essentially figuring out what the private keys are. So a cryptocurrency is defined by its private key. So the private key is just a random number. It's a huge number. So it's 256 bits. So it's impossible to guess. And what we do is we take that private key and, and put it through um, a special one-way algorithm that comes up with a public key. So it's really easy to go from the private to public. And the public key is transformed to become your address. So people can send you uh, some currency to that address, and then you control that with your private key. Right. Okay, so, so uh, the, the issue is, could there be a possibility of going from the public key to the private? So public is open, private 
is private. So quantum computing actually offers the possibility of actually doing that. So, uh, so basically, if nothing happened, eventually, the quantum uh, computing could effectively figure out uh, the private keys. Now you think, oh, well, that's got to be an existential risk. And it turns out it isn't. And let me explain why. So all we're going to do is once the quantum computing gets close to actually doing this, um, people will basically move their cryptocurrency to basically another private key. So I can always send cryptocurrency to myself. So think of this as taking money out of your left pocket and putting it into your right. And we'll do this. And when we do this, we will basically sign that transaction with a, what's known as a post quantum or a quantum proof of signature. And that defeats the quantum uh, computer. So anybody that wants to, to save their, their cryptocurrency will do this. So we're always one step ahead of this. Um, but what is interesting and isn't that well uh, talked about is what about all of the cryptocurrency that's been lost? Mm -hmm. So there's millions of Bitcoin that have been lost. And what True. I mean by lost is that people have lost their private keys. Correct. So that is just a bonanza for the quantum computing uh, firms. And it's perfectly legal to go and harvest, you know, tens of billions of dollars, or well, could be uh, actually more like $150 billion uh, of Bitcoin and uh, who knows how much Ethereum also. That's just for the taking. That is, that is the biggest payoff right now for quantum uh, computing companies. That's the last point is quite interesting. It's analogous to, you know, when the, maybe the ships that sank in the 16th century, 17th century, and if the people believe or they know that like they had some treasures, gold and so on and so forth, you have divers who go on those special expeditions and they bring it out and, uh, you know, and if it is international waters, probably some of them don't even have to come under governmental jurisdictions and of the treasures and the, the treasure hunt they go on literally. So sounds like that, the last part. Yeah, no, it is. And, and again, um, it's just for the taking. And somebody might say, oh, well, you just, you just recovered my Bitcoin, my thousand Bitcoin that I lost the key uh, for. Um, and then there could be hundreds of people that make that claim for the same thousand, right? So, oh, well, that's my public address. And, and right. without the private key, you can't prove it. You can't prove that it's yours. So yeah, it'll just be for the taking. That's kind of interesting. Um, but uh, again, quantum computing is, is quite uh, misunderstood. Uh, it's actually the subject of one of the courses. Uh, you mentioned I teach um, tech-driven transformation of business, and that's one of the topics I deal with in the course. Right. So, so changing gear, you know, uh, China has created digital yuan recently, and they declared that all cryptocurrency transactions as illegal. So what are the regulatory risks of DeFi and uh, should we have regulated DeFi? Okay, um, so, so China uh, will be the leader 
uh, in central bank digital currency. So China has got problems. And one problem is that those that have made some money want to get their money offshore. And mm. China has very severe regulations that limit the amount of wealth that you can transfer every year offshore. And they saw cryptocurrency as basically a way for people effectively to offshore without actually offshoring. And what I mean by that is cryptocurrency just exists on thousands of ledgers around the world. So if you've got a Bitcoin, that Bitcoin lives in a ledger that is identical and replicated in thousands of different nodes around the world. So it's not like you're actually transferring anything, it's just there. So just holding that crypto uh, is enough for you to effectively defeat this idea of uh, limiting uh, the transfers. So China uh, will move to uh, a central bank digital currency. They will uh, restrict the use as we've already seen of cryptocurrency. And they're in the best position to actually do this, okay? We know that justice is swift in China. There's no appeals court, Supreme Court, uh, and, and stuff like that, um, that justice is swift. And on top of that, um, given their system, it's credible for them to impose a central bank digital currency. So think about the sort of things that happen. Um, this means that the government has the ability to efficiently collect taxes, but they could be very selective. So they could tax your wealth 100%, right? So they could effectively delete your wealth because this is a centralized uh, system. And oh, by the way, uh, they also know every single transaction that every single citizen makes. Absolutely. So again, you could do this in China. To do this in the US is gonna be highly uh, problematic. So uh, th that just not going to work in the way that is implemented uh, in China. So. Uh, you mentioned regulatory risk, and uh, that's, of course, one of the risks in my book. My book is not like an advocacy book. Uh, it's not a marketing book. Uh, that's I'm, why I'm talking I, to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm an academic, uh, and I teach this stuff. And I decided that, well, I, I, I really admire my Duke students. It's time to move beyond Duke, to have a larger audience. And, and, and I think that uh, in my book, I give this balanced assessment of all the risks uh, that decentralized finance faces. And one of the chapters is on regulatory risk. And we've right. seen uh, in the US, the Securities and Exchange Commission is supposedly got DeFi in its crosshairs. Uh, it's interesting the actions that they've taken uh, already. So they basically went um, and did what's known as a Wells notice for Coinbase because Coinbase was going to offer a 4% um, savings rate 
if right. you deposited the USDC, which is the stable coin. So that's kind of like a bank account, right? So a bank account, but instead of having a zero um, or a 0.1% uh, interest rate, you're getting 4%. So uh, the uh, SEC uh, goes um, and, and serves notice on Coinbase and Coinbase actually had to withdraw it. But if you think about what's really happening here, the SEC goes after Coinbase because Coinbase is a centralized organization. So there is a CEO, there is a board of directors, there is a head office. And they just did this really successful IPO where they were valued at the IPO at $85 billion. So very high profile. So it's much more difficult for the SEC to, to try to go after, let's say, a decentralized finance uh, protocol. So this is an algorithm. So who are you gonna serve notice to? The algorithm resides on thousands of computers all over the world. There's not a US algorithm. It's not an algorithm that is a Singapore algorithm uh, or Japan, whatever. It, it is just all over the place, the same thing, identical. Who are you going to serve? And then maybe you go after the governance or the users of the protocol. But that doesn't make any sense because the SEC is supposed to protect those users. And the users are actually benefiting from the protocol. So it kind of goes against um, their raison d'etre. So I think that we will see some guidance uh, over the next couple of years. And I do believe that we need that guidance. Right. So the regulators have a very tough job. So um, the, the Securities Act 1933 was introduced because of the abuses of the financial system leading up to the Great Depression and the, the stock market crash uh, in the US in 1929 and around the world. So it, the prime goal is to protect consumers from fraud and, and things like that. So that's the prime goal. But that 1933 act didn't say anything about cryptocurrency obviously, right, at that time. So there's not that much guidance here, and it's important to get that guidance. And the regulators are, like, they know what the trade-off is. So if they are really harsh on the regulations, then the innovation is killed or the innovation moves offshore. Uh, if they're too lenient, then there is a lot of abuse. So you need right. to get the middle ground. And right now we don't even have the middle ground. They're trying to figure it out. It's hard to figure out because this technology is complex, but they're trying to find the middle ground. And actually I think that what they will come up with will be helpful. And uh, I heard uh, this great sort of metaphor about regulation and DeFi at a conference and it was, a very distinguished lawyer from um, the US firm of Davis Polk, who uh, does really good work in the crypto uh, space. And what she said uh, was the following. She gave the example of a highway. And uh, regulations basically ensure that there are lanes painted on the highway. Correct. There are on-ramps and off-ramps that are clearly marked 
on the highway because of the regulation. And the result is that it allows cars to go faster on the highway. And the point that she was making is that uh, if there is a regulatory environment that is, is deemed fair uh, and balanced, that that could allow the DeFi space to develop much more quickly. And, uh, and I, I believe that that is the case because right now, certain protocols are thinking, oh, well, the SEC might come after us saying that what we're doing might qualify as a security. It's not clear that it is, but there is some probability. Maybe it's a 25% probability. So therefore, we're going to move our firm to the Cayman Islands. And that's exactly what you don't want, right? So uh, I think that every country uh, can benefit from its own innovation and you don't want the good ideas that let's say uh, are coming from one country just to go to some some haven like uh, Nevis or, or Cayman Islands. <laughs> Correct, correct. So, so there's another uh, and you know uh, thing which is in the news nowadays. Non fungible tokens are NFT. So, what are fungible tokens and non fungible tokens? Um, are there some equivalents in the real world that people can relate to? Like, like uh, is money yeah, fungible no. in that sense? Yeah, exactly. So, um, let's say U.S. dollars are fungible, and what I mean by that is if I have two one dollar bills. They've got different serial numbers on them, but they're identical. So they're, they're valued the same. And indeed, I can take 10 of those $1 bills and exchange it for a $10 bill. So it's completely uh, fungible. Okay, so the, every dollar is exactly equal to another dollar. So NFTs were originally called deeds. Right. So you have a deed to some land, and that's right. unique. And you've got a deed to another piece of land that is unique. So uh, non-fungible tokens just means that every token has got a different value. Okay, right. so, uh, so you could have 10 non-fungible tokens. There's no reason that they would have the same value. And these non-fungible tokens could be, for example, um, a deed. Uh, they could be uh, a mortgage. They could be a right. bond. Right. There's many different things that you can do. And what's become popular is to tokenize, let's say, art. Mm. That's got a lot yes. of uh, uh, news, sports yeah. uh, things like um, trading Baseball cards. Bogs, yeah. You know, the, the first tweet that was ever sent was yes. uh, NFT'd, certain video clips. Uh, I think Time Magazine did their, their covers and that sold yes. out very quickly. So it's a really uh, interesting idea. And again, this is consistent with what I said at the beginning that in the future, everything will be tokenized. So that's good. So similar to uh, traditional finance, does decentralized finance enable um, collateralized or uncollateralized loans. So can a person take a DeFi loan on their house? You just mentioned loans. So, so just that brings up this question. Yeah, so, so definitely. Um, and uh, so in the space right now, um, we do collateralized uh, lending. 
So it's like your house. So mm-hmm. think of your house that you've got a house, it's paid off, but you need some money. And one possibility is just to sell the house and collect the money and then spend it. But then you need to buy a new house or find some place to rent. Um, so, so instead you go for a mortgage loan or a home equity loan. And basically what you do is you pledge the, your collateral as the house, and then you get a fraction of that value, uh, from, from a loan. So the loan is over collateralized. So if your house is worth 200,000 and, uh, and you're able to withdraw, let's say 170,000, there's an over collateralization there, of let's say roughly 25%. So in the DeFi space, it's very similar. So you might hold some Ethereum, for example, and you don't want to sell it because you think it's actually going to go up in value. Just like the house, you think that's going to go up in value also. So you pledge that uh, collateral and then you can basically take out a loan. Now, the difference between the uh, house-based collateral and the Ethereum-based collateral is the volatility. So the real estate is not that volatile. Ethereum is very volatile. So there needs to be like over collateralization of that loan. So that space uh, is quite a vibrant space in decentralized finance right now. There, um, there is also some uncollateralized lending that goes on. Um, and this is a relatively new space and it does involve some trust. So if you know somebody that doesn't have the collateral, but you actually believe they can pay it back, then you post the the collateral for them and you collect a reward for actually doing this. So this market is just uh, emerging. And then the third category is a very interesting category that to me is really fascinating. And this is this idea of a flash loan. So this is a concept that is unique to decentralized finance. And it's hard to actually um, believe this is true, but consider a loan that is completely uncollateralized, that has zero duration, zero credit risk, and zero interest rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's oh well, how is that possible and it has to do with the way that ethereum transactions work and these transactions are atomic and what i mean by that is the following the transaction can have many steps so a transaction might have you know 10 different steps to it and if any step fails then you revert to where we began with before the transaction. So think of a transaction where you, uh, the first thing you do is borrow some money. And this is the flash loan. Then the second step, you deploy it. And maybe you see an arbitrage opportunity that the price of a cryptocurrency is different on one exchange than another. So you buy in one exchange, you sell on the other exchange. Then the last step, you pay back the loan. So if something happens and the price that you get on that second exchange is not what you expected, 
and you can't pay back the loan, then we revert to where we began before the loan was actually taken out. So that's what I mean by zero credit risk and zero duration that happens in the same uh, transaction. And uh, in my class, I go through um, a flash loan example where the very first step is someone borrowing the equivalent of $200 million. Right. And, and again, the same thing happens where it is paid back, uh, the whole 200 million is paid back in the same transaction, millions of dollars are made in, in arbitrage uh, profits. And I give this an example is not just of a flash loan, but of the idea of financial democracy, that the person doing this, and it's sometimes called an exploit, uh, I call it mm -hmm. arbitrage, the person doing this, we don't know who it was, but it could be a 15-year-old kid mm. that has no wealth whatsoever, pulling off an arbitrage transaction that usually we think is associated with a hedge fund. Right. To go to do a $200 million loan, we can't, I can't do that. You can't do that. And certainly a 15-year-old kid cannot do that. But in this space of decentralized finance, you can do that because everybody's the same. And, uh, and again, this is uh, just a, a great example of financial uh, democracy. Right. So, you know, uh, talking of loan, then, you know, whenever we say loan, you know, we think of loan default. So Ethereum accounts you mentioned are uh, uh, pseudonymous. So enforcing repayment in your book, you say enforcing repayment in the event of a loan default is virtually impossible. So help me understand. So is that not a matter of concern? No. So, uh, and, and MakerDAO is a good example uh, here, and I give them a lot of attention uh, in my book. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. idea is that the loan is over collateralized. Right. And as soon as you drop below the minimum collateralization ratio, then there are, um, there are people called keepers and it's a special term for uh, in decentralized finance that go and close out your loan. So they will liquidate and they mm -hmm. collect a fee from actually uh, doing that. So that's the, the first uh, kind of level uh, here uh, to prevent a situation where uh, there's a default. So this is not a default. There's still plenty of collateral there you and the keeper will basically uh, close out the loan. Any residual amount uh, is paid to the uh, borrower, and uh, and we're done. Uh, but if there was a massive drop in uh, the the collateral value, um, then there's like a like a reserve pool that could be drawn upon, and then there's a third and fourth level of risk management within the system. And again, everything is completely uh, transparent. Okay. So, so all of this uh, greatly mitigates uh, the, the probability of, of a serious default. And again, you're right that uh, everybody's a peer, but we don't know who the peers actually are. So there's no need for a credit check here. Right. So, so, you know, you mentioned transparency. So transparency of uh, smart uh, contracts, as you said, you know, reduces and eases the threat of legal burdens. You say that in your book. 
help me understand here you know powerful entities still can still drop the smart contracts and you know internet we see so many um, contracts and we have no choice as an individual to agree on the terms so i mean uh, you know in defi also big companies can still enforce their side of the case and trouble the small guy or is there a mechanism to not hurt the small guy uh, my understanding is not correct no small guy that's the, okay. that's the beauty of defi that everybody is a peer there's no you know rich peer and and poor peer everybody is equal here um so and and these contracts once deployed they're just open source contracts so it's just there forever um there's a number of different types of smart contracts so one is a contract that's deployed and that's it so once it's deployed it's there forever and then there's other contracts where certain parameters in the contract can be controlled by the governance of the protocol. So for example, I mentioned the collateralization ratio. So that could be a tuning a parameter that the governance could actually vote on. So if a cryptocurrency became much more volatile, for example, than it was in the past, then maybe you want to increase the collateralization ratio. Or for example, a savings rate, you might want to alter the savings rate and the governance could vote on that. So, uh, the, so the people that are using uh, the protocol are often the people that have that governance and, and they want to do the best thing for the protocol because the value is basically associated with the governance tokens. So right. uh, look, it is, We've had plenty of situations already where uh, smart contracts have been deployed that have been flawed. So even um, today in the news, uh, there is a very prominent protocol where there's a bug in one of the contracts they deployed that is gonna be very costly for the governance of the protocol. Uh, okay. This stuff happens all the time. And I wanna emphasize that this idea of decentralized finance is not without risk. Mm -hmm. And I, Again, I spent a lot of time on these oh, risks. Yes. And right. I think that it's really clear to me that any technological disruption of the scale of decentralized finance uh, is going to carry risk. And you can't eliminate all that risk. You want to eliminate the risk, then just go buy treasury bills. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah. so there are risks and some people will lose money. That's true. Uh, some protocols will be attacked, drained. I go through plenty of examples, uh, but we learn from that and, and we can fix things very quickly. So given everything's open source, so right. you see a contract, you like it, but you think, well, I can improve upon that by adding X. Well, you add a couple of lines of code to uh, the copied code of the uh, what, what you saw out there. And you can redeploy, start a new uh, contract very quickly. And then uh, that can become popular. And, and think about centralized finance, how difficult that would be. You're doing your online banking with your, your, your bank and you see something that the bank could do differently that would make it better for the user. 
and then maybe you contact your bank and they think it's a good idea. And then maybe like two years later, it appears. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a totally different world uh, yep, where yep. here it appears very quickly. You can do it very Correct. quickly. Okay. So I wanted to bring the context of uh, developing economies, the broader world here. Uh, you know, uh, we have seen, you know, mobile payment mechanisms like M-Pesa in Kenya and rest of Africa, Alipay in China, yeah. empower the common person and, you know, small businesses, right? And you, you mentioned about how they can be, uh, banks don't care and they charge right. credit card interest. And in these countries, they don't even have credit cards. And these guys have actually empowered small businesses and small common right. man. So similar systems are also picking up in India and many other developing economies. So what I wanted to hear from you is how can DeFi help these countries and people in their financial transactions and without being cheated out of their hard-earned money by bad actors? You know, I just wanted to put that side also to it. Yeah, so I definitely, um, I teach this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've got a lecture on the history of money and the history of digital money uh, in particular. And uh, M-Pesa was a great idea that basically um, originally the way it started was that people were transacting in mobile phone minutes. <laughs> yes. so they're just bypassing the currency uh, completely uh, in Kenya. So, um, but this is just an example of FinTech. And I talk about FinTech okay. in my book. And a lot of the FinTech today like Alipay, for example, um, or WeChat Pay, it, it yeah. still relies upon the centralized banking system. In the Absolutely. US, the major fintech firms, um, they, they're relying upon the backbone. So what they're doing is they're reducing transactions costs, which is good. Okay, so I'm fully supportive of that. And they are actually taking a big piece of the centralized banking, uh, commercial banking business. So you look at the capitalization of a firm like Stripe, uh, it, it is huge uh, compared to the actual uh, commercial banks uh, today. So, um, so they're basically chipping away, reducing the transactions costs. And yes, you're correct that it allows to some degree um, some inclusion, but not, uh, you, you, again, you need to have some banking relationship to, to use many of these uh, protocols. So it's not what you think that this serves the, the unbanked. Uh, that's not really true. But yeah. I think it's really uh, important to put this into the longer term context. And in my book, I argue that the current wave of fintech um, is fleeting. Indeed, uh, you kind of started off uh, the first question, quoting, uh, you know, the the co-founder of, Par of Paradigm and, and Coinbase. So right. he actually made the statement in my course that the current wave of fintech is like putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> what he means by that is that okay well it's great it reduces transactions costs but only to a certain level and given that the current wave of fintech is using the same centralized infrastructure 
there's a limit as to how far we can actually go with that. So, and, and that limit uh, just doesn't exist for decentralized finance, which basically deals peer to peer. There's no middle person. So the current FinTech, there is, it's centralized, use the same infrastructure. Yes, it's true, transactions costs are lower, but use the same um, infrastructure and central banking system. Thank you very much. That was a very optimistic note to bring the discussion to an end. Uh, so, you know, we do look forward to those uh, futures where the, you know, the broader, uh, you know, the underbanked and uh, unbanked benefit from the good things in DeFi. And thank you very much for taking your time out. And I think your explanations are lucid and very clear for people who have a non-finance background also to understand. And that's also true of your book. Uh, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm sure our viewers will. And, uh, you know, we strongly recommend that people uh, get an insight and a deeper understanding of this rather than the headline news that comes every day. Thank you very much, Professor Harvey. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us in yet another episode of Move Conversations. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the Move Conversations YouTube channel and press the bell icon to get notifications of new episodes. Thank you very much. Till I see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a great day.